welcome to Modern Witch Chronicles. I'm your host, Koji Hellenwein, and this is episode five. Before I kick off with today's interview, I just wanted to extend a huge big thank you to all of you supporters, subscribers and badass motorcycle riders all over the world who've been sending me emails and incredible support and feedback and general virtual high fives to say how much you're enjoying this podcast. Thank you so much. Seriously, send in more because it makes me want to keep doing what I do. If you've been following at Moto Witch Collective on Instagram, you're probably already aware of some of the really cool things that we have in store for you guys. We've got ride outs, camping trips, some incredible collaborations in the works, and soon we'll be launching Moto Witch Apparel. Our online store will be launching very, very soon, so make sure you subscribe to the newsletter so you can hear when motowitch.com forward slash shop is live. And if you want to support Motowitch so that we can keep this content coming to you for free, please do head on over there when it's live and get yourself a t-shirt so that you can Instagram the crap out of us, hashtag us at Motowitch Collective. Do it all so that we can share your awesome photos of you wearing our t-shirts all over the world because that is just going to make us keep doing what we're doing. Now, back to normal business. Today's interview is with a woman that I have been following for a very long time. Her story is incredibly inspiration to me. She has traveled to all sorts of parts of the world by herself, and it's just such a pleasure to have her on today. She's a three-time author, a folk musician, an artist, a motorcycle adventurer, and I am so excited to have her here today. Please welcome Linda Boothurstone Bick. Linda, welcome to the Motor Witch Chronicles all the way from Australia. How are you doing today? Oh, good. Thanks, Koji. Yes, it's a really nice day here. Thank goodness. And we've got a big festival at the moment, oh. so lots of people in town. Oh, lovely. You're a three-time author, a folk musician, an artist, and a motorcycle adventurer. Mm-hmm. And you've been riding motorcycles for how many years now? Gosh, I, th- I think I think it's about 55. <laughs> I've lost track. <laughs> it was about 1963 or somewhere around there that I started yeah wow what was it like riding a motorbike in the 60s as a woman um actually it, it wasn't too bad there was um there were I belonged to a, a local motorcycle club and there were a few of us in in that but also I soon found out about the Women's International Motorcycle Association which has actually been going since about 1952 it was uh, started off in in America by a woman called Louise Sherburn and she you know she was she used to ride an Indian all around America and she she decided it'd be good to try and get in contact with women all around the world gosh there's about I must I think it's about 30 countries now that belong that have uh, women in uh, from um, of course in those days they weren't that many women you know that now there's loads of women's bike clubs that have joined you know started and it's great you know so but then it wasn't there weren't so many so it was good to join I got to know a few women different countries and back then I mean obviously that's before the internet yes oh yeah (laughs) mobile phones and everything How did you guys stay in touch? Well, we wrote letters. <laughs> we actually wrote letters. We put, well, they call it snail mail now, don't they? But, you know, we, we wrote yeah. letters to each other. And uh, actually, the postal service seems to have been a lot better then than it is now, you know, between countries. Oh, wow, really? Yes, I think so. Because I think, well, everything's cut back now, hasn't it? Because of the internet. The postal service just seems to be, I mean, I'm, I can't remember, first of all, in England, you know, we used to have two postal deliveries a day. That's impressive. Oh, uh, well, and I think probably over here in, in Australia, they might have done two. Yeah. But now there's only one. And uh, it seems to take forever to get post just even within Australia. 
So you guys all kept up with snail mail. That's that's absolutely fascinating. So now there must be a website for this, is there? Oh, the yes, WIMA, um, the Women's International Motorcycle Association. Yeah, they've got uh, um, an overall uh, one called WIMA World, which is uh, for all uh, all the countries, and a lot of countries have got their own. I mean, we've got a WIMA Australia over here. Yeah, they, you, if you look up WIMA World, go on the on Google and look it up. You'll find it, yeah. I'll make sure to put that link in the show notes. So you've toured many parts of the world on your motorcycle. Mm. One particular trip I heard about was you started in the south of Spain mm -hmm. and you made your way across how many countries as far as Australia? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I lost count. Um, I think I think it was probably, you know, somewhere in the 20s. Um, I, I know I did about 80-odd thousand kilometres. Wow. Um, I had uh, a DR650. Yeah. And it took me nearly two years. It took me 21 months wow. to do it. Yeah, Two years. Oh my God. And then your recent trip then was to Uganda. Yes. How long was that trip? Oh, um, it was only three months. I decided after that really long trip from, from Spain to Australia, I was complete wreck, both mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I would never put myself through that sort of thing again. I would only... Go away for three months at a time. So when I did my South American trip a couple of years ago, I was just away for three months then, and and then when I was just away for three months. Wow. wow. So you were saying that the long trip took a toll on you. How old were you, if you don't mind me asking, when you did that eighty-one thousand kilometers? I was fifty-nine when I started, and I had my sixtieth birthday up in the Himalayas, <gasps> which was really good up in the mountains. Wow. It was fantastic. Yeah, I had uh, some. My sister actually flew out from England, and my uh, one of my uh, motorcycle friends from Germany flew out for it. And there were some other overlanders there, you know, that were passing through as well that came. So we had a great time up in one of the old colonial hotels. Yeah, it's lovely. It's magic. Sounds absolutely magic. What kind of planning do you put into such a huge undertaking as these long, even the three-month trips? Do you have particular steps that you go through to plan something like this? Well, of course, if you're if you're going into uh, you know other countries, you have to think about um, first of all the visas that you might need. You have to think about the customs carnet for your vehicle. If you're if you're going on your own vehicle, you have to have a customs carnet to save you paying duty in and out of every country, and that means putting up. Uh, money, uh, quite a lot of money as a guarantee. I mean, the last couple of times I've been away, I bought a bike in the country, so I haven't had to do that. But you have to say, you have to think about inoculations, which depending on which countries you're going through, you what might you need? You have to think about the weather. If you're going on a really long trip like I did, I had to judge where I was going to be at what time of the year to so that I, the weather, I mean, for example, in the north of Pakistan, if you're going up the Karakuram Highway, you really don't want to be going up there in the winter because you can't get through, you know, be snowed under. And other places you, you've got to think, well, crikey, if I go through there in the mid midsummer, you know, it's going to be 50 odd degrees. How am I going to cope with that? So when you're doing that sort of planning, you have to think about not only how long you're going to get on your visa, because that depends. Sometimes some visas you can renew in the country and some you can't, but also what time of the year you're, you're going to be there. So some of your trip is, is really regulated by that. You know, like you like to stay longer in some countries, but if you do, you might be held up for another three months to, when the weather changes or, you know, you might not be able to get hold of the visa. So there's a lot of things you have to plan. Yeah, it did. And you've got to think about the vehicle you're going to take. If you are taking a vehicle yourself, what type of vehicle is going to be, be fit to where you can get 
spares you know, and all that sort of thing amazing it's a lot before you leave do you already have your destinations and your routes in mind or do you kind of wing it as you go you have to have a destination and route if you're going to if you're going to get visas you have to have some idea which way you're going to plan for that but it depends you know there is a certain um latitude latitude in in going if you want to change your mind and go somewhere else well you might be able to you might be able to go through and get another visa or something or um yeah I mean I didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing when I when I left on that journey I had a rough idea and I got the visas for the countries that I needed or I knew where I could get them on the route and of course you have to think about the money situation um yeah. whether you i mean i don't ever take um travelers checks anymore because they're such a pain but you've got to think about what sort of money can you change american dollars are usually pretty universal mm-hmm. um in some countries they'll take euros or or some countries they'll take sterling but you you have to try and judge what you're going to take with you you know places like iran don't use a visa card you can't use a, you can't use a, a you know a card there so you have to take cash more and more countries now you can use cards but you've got to realize which cards they will take i usually take at least two different kinds because one might not work and of course it helps to have money in there <laughs> you're not likely to be able to earn any on the way wow, speaking of money it must be yeah. a very expensive thing to do you know to take off for 3 months how do you go about managing the finances on route when dealing with so many different currencies well, as I say, you, you have to decide which money you're going to take that you, you would be able to change easily. If you're most most African or Eurasian countries, you don't spend much money at all. You know, like I think I went through the whole of Iran and I was there for at least six weeks. I think I had to renew my visa once. And it only cost, only cost me about $100 <laughs> because, um, because the petrol was so cheap there at that time. It was just you could fill your whole tank five dollars you know and people were so generous that they would be inviting you in to stay overnight or feed you and everything so in a lot of those countries you don't spend a lot of money it's only in Europe you know and Australia (laughs) you spend a lot of money but if you're in those other countries of course you have to you know you have to think about this I can't remember how much money I took with me but I people are amazed how little I spend because I don't spend much money where I am now, you live it living here. I mean, I don't spend money on new cars or, or new clothes, or um, I haven't haven't got any children, so I don't have to spend money on them. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't spend money on the house. Yeah. So it just depends what your priorities are, and I just save my money to go away. Right. So when you're going to another country, you said that sometimes you go there and you buy a motorcycle at your destination. How do you go about setting that into motion? Do you research that online and find something before you leave? Well, yes, I can, but um, I also uh, do. You know about Horizons Unlimited site? Yeah. Well, Horizons Unlimited it's sort of for overlanders for people that travel overseas, not necessarily by motorcycle, but a lot of motorcyclists go on it, and they have contacts in most countries, um, in a lot of countries around the world. What I've done now, the last couple of times, when I went to South America and when I went to Uganda, I I went, I had a look on that site, and I found people who who lived there who were motorcyclists, and I contacted them and I said, would you be able to help me look for a, a bike when I get there? And they said, yes. So I did. I got there. When I got to, to Chile, I um, there was some really lovely women motorcyclists there. It was amazing how many women motorcyclists there are in Chile now. And they helped me find a bike. I bought, actually did buy a new one 
in Santiago because it was just just so cheap. The motorcycles over there were so cheap that it was it was worth my while to buy a new one, and then it would be for resale because I sold it, you know, before I left. Yeah. Three months later, I you know I, I didn't lose very much on it at all. And the same thing in Uganda. I contacted a, a friend in in uh, one of the Horizon Unlimited people, and he said, "Yeah, sure, come and stay with me in, in uh, Kampala, and uh, we can look around for a bike for you." And I bought a secondhand one there. So if you can find that sort of contacts before you leave, that really helps. Yeah. Which yes, I'm, not, I'm not worried about it. I know I'll find something. <laughs> but what was it that drew you to Uganda? Had you been there before? No, I hadn't because when I did my overland trip down through Africa in 1974, I couldn't go to Uganda because Idi Amin was in control. So I missed out on that country. But I found that one of my old school friends who I hadn't seen since 1961, hadn't even heard from her since 1961, we managed to make contact on Facebook. I don't quite know how, but I discovered that she was living and working in Uganda. I said to her, well, Liz, can I come over and stay with you? And, you know, I'll buy a bike over there I'll make contact and so she said yes so I went to Uganda primarily really to make contact with my friend Liz and also to see the country the guy in um, saying Kampala Ian he helped me buy a bike there and and off I went so yeah it was really good it was really good for the most part in Uganda you were traveling alone or did you have friends come and join you at any point or did you pick up stragglers along the way no, I most when I was on the bike, I travelled by myself. Now Liz and her friend and I, um, she managed to get some time off from from her work. She actually uh, runs an NGO over there, and she and, and this other man that helps her with the NGO, they wanted to do a trip up to Kadepo National Park in her van. Mm-hmm. And so we actually went together in the van. Uh, it was about about a two-week trip to go up there and have a look around the national park. She actually used to live there back in the 70s, so she knew a lot of people. So that was the only time. Otherwise, I was by myself, and I went off into Miranda by myself as well mm-hmm. on the bike. It never worries me traveling by myself. It's always good fun. And what is the infrastructure there like? Or, like what are the roads and the maps, signage and accommodation and things like that? What are they like there? Well, Uganda now, it has some of the roads have been reconstructed by, I mean, the Chinese are everywhere making roads. Some of the main routes, the the ones that the tourists use when they have a lot of Americans come over to go to the national parks, some of the main roads are tarred and they're quite good, but (laughs) a lot of the back roads are terrible. Uh, You know, even in towns, you know, it's awful just going around the back roads, you're in potholes and goodness knows what. Um, Even in the Centre like Kampala, the guy that I was, when I stayed with Ian, his the road out to his house was shocking. Um, the also the the traffic you had to really get used to <laughs> used to the way that the traffic works. Um, and being a motorcyclist, you are you know only up one up from a cyclist and, and one up from a pedestrian. So you're you're <laughs> you have if something is coming the other way. Um, you just have to get out of the way. You know that they're going to overtake illegally and you just have to get off the road. Uh, and you just get used to that sort of thing. Um, the roads in Miranda were excellent. They, they're also Chinese built. And um, since the problems they had back in the, in the um, 90s with the genocide problem, a lot of aid has gone in to, into Miranda. The, the roads are absolutely incredible. They're amazing. I couldn't couldn't help but stop and take photographs of all these lovely clear roads and bends. Not a lot of people 
actually have their own motor vehicles there. Oh, wow. uh, there are a lot of bicycles and a lot of people just walking. So not only are the roads clear with no people, but, I mean, they're so well sealed. You, I thought, oh, gosh, it's the only time that I wished my bike was bigger. <laughs> what bike did you have? I just had a little 125 Yamaha. I love 125 Yamahas. This one was quite an old one. The one I had in, in um, South America was new and it was really good. You know, I could sit on 100 all day. But this one, I think, uh, you know, it's more like my postie. <laughs> it would only do about 80 kilometres an hour, but it was, you know, it was fine. Most of the time you don't need to go any faster than that. But when you get a nice stretch of clear road with lots of lovely bends, it would have been nicer. When you were out there, where were you staying? Were you camping a lot? Oh, I did take my tent and I did camp in a few places, but in the towns I, I stayed in the sort of hostels. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I, yeah, some of the places in the national parks, they have got camp, specified camping areas um, where the, you know, the overland trucks stay and, uh, and you can camp there. So you pay for camping there and that's, that's fine. Either camping or in very inexpensive hostels. When you're camping, do you have to worry about wild animals or does your safety ever come into account there? No, I don't think so. I never worry about things like that. Oh, don't. <laughs> <Good for you. laughs> don't welcome it into your life. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just just carry on. Everything will be fine. <laughs> While you're yeah. traveling around, are you on the road every single day or are you stopping for a few days in, in each place to, just to explore? Yes, I mean, yeah, it depends where I am. For Uganda, yeah, I, I stopped and had a look around some of the villages. They had places where you can go out to, you know, look at the national parks or you can go out and ride around a lake. Or oh, wow. And uh, this is a motorbike of mine. It never actually let me down, but it always had a few problems. So wherever I went, I had to go and sort out the local mechanic and, and have a rest day while they were fiddling around <laughs> with my bike. So, you know, it was it was, it was was quite entertaining, really. Yeah. But you never had a breakdown when you were on the road in Uganda? No, 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 I never had a breakdown, no. Oh, that's very fortunate. And how old was the bike that you had? I think, I'm not, I can't remember now. When I bought it, I had no idea how old it was. And I think it turned out, when I found that eventually got the papers for it, I think it turned out to be about 19 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 was, it obviously had a hard life. <laughs> By the time I by the time I sold it, it was in really good condition because I'd had it, just about everything fixed yeah. on it. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. How did the locals react to seeing a woman on a bike? Was it something normal for them to see? No, it wasn't normal. And of course, you don't realise how much a white face. Because I have an open face helmet, I don't like full face, and it was too hot to you know before. You don't realise how much a white face actually stands out on a bike. I mean, everybody's there's riding motorbikes, but not many. There's not many white people around riding a motorbike. So and the, and the, they pick it up straight away and they shout at you. Muzungo, muzungo is you know is the word for sort of foreigner white sort of ghost I think the actual means ghost <laughs> but they call out Mzungo and they wave you know and all the kids are waving and shouting at you as you go along I didn't realize how conspicuous I was but yeah no they they, uh, they thought it was good oh, they thought it was good fantastic. obviously we all know Africa is well known for its phenomenal wildlife did you ever have any encounters with any of those incredible creatures out there the first time I sort of, I went out with Liz, we went to a, a, the national park. First of all, we went in her, um, we were in her van and we were on the edge of a national park, actually. We didn't have to pay to go in. We were just on the edge. There were a lot of animals there that were really amazing. 
uh, took a lot of photographs. They weren't the big four or whatever you call them, you know. Um, but when I was driving up to go to another park further north, I did see, first thing, I saw a whole load of baboons on the road ahead of me. And I was a little bit sort of taken aback because they, they're they quite big baboons. And I thought, if they jump up at me, they'll knock me over. <laughs> well, so I sort of crept behind them for a while. And then they sort of gradually veered off and I managed to get past them. And then I saw a wild elephant. They call them wild elephants if they're by themselves, the lone elephants, because if they... If they're not in a herd, it means they've been outcast. Yeah. And back in the 70s, I, I saw one when I was in Kenya, and and, it, and I sort of had a bit of an incident with one of those I had to sort of rush away from. Yeah. And when I saw this other elephant, I thought, oh, oh here we go again. <laughs> Here's another wild elephant. But I did actually st- – I was far enough away because I had a zoom on my camera, which I didn't have back in the 70s. Because I had a Zoom, I stopped and I managed to get a photograph of it and I took off fairly quickly. I didn't hang around, but didn't see any of the other, I didn't see any lions or anything like that. I I have seen those in the wild. So I'm not, I wasn't, didn't actually go to Uganda to specifically go and see wildlife. It just so happened that I did see some and I did go to some parks purely because they were en route, you know, and they were interesting to go to. But as I say, really, I went over there to, to find my friend Liz and just experience it. But I wasn't wasn't really thinking of about wild animals. When you finish your trip then, you said that you sell your bike. How do you go about doing that? Do you leave it with someone or do you always find something through your connections in Chile, when I got back to Santiago, I mean, Santiago is a big city and there's a lot of people that, you know, ride motorbikes. And I say I kept mine was new when I bought it. It had only done about 8,000 kilometers. So they've got a local website and I put it on the local website and it was snatched up, you know, before I left. It, I, I actually went and transferred it and got the money before I left. But with, with, uh, with Silva, which is my other one, <laughs> I left her with Ian, the guy that had helped me buy her, and he sold her fairly quickly. Again, he put it on the internet and he sold her fairly quickly yeah. after I'd left and just sent the money over to me. Oh, that's great. It's great to be able to have those contacts that can help you after the fact. Yes. I, actually, back in 1983, when I come to think of it, I went to America and I stayed with with Louise Sherburne. She was still alive then. She was about 80. And I got a, a little 360 Honda from a local woman rider and I bought it over there and then I rode it all the way around America. I think I was there for about Oh, God, four or five months. And then I I got to California and I left it with a motorcycle magazine editor. Wow, that's fantastic. And he sold it for me and sent me over the money. And in actual fact, I think he sold it for more than I paid for it. it You know, it was, I mean, it's only about $400 or something in those days, but I got this 360. And I'd used it all, you know, all the time. So it's it's a really good way of doing it. I wouldn't even dream of taking my bike. I mean, especially from Australia, you, it's unbelievable the cost of taking a bike overseas from here. So it's much better just to buy one, and you don't really have you don't have all these problems with having to get carnets, you know, customs carnets and things. You can if you if you're going overland, obviously you need to have something like that because you're going through lots of different countries. But if you're only going to go through a few, I managed to get permission to take my bike over, you know, into Bolivia and into Argentina on the Chilean number plate. So it was no problem. When you buy a bike, how do you go about insuring it and registering it then? Don't you have to be a resident in countries to do that? Well, yeah, some of you do. When I was in Chile, I could actually got somebody to act as a sort of guarantor for me and I could get it in my own name. And therefore, you just 
district, you know, once they've done that and you've filled in all the forms. In Uganda, I couldn't do that. So they wouldn't have a a non-resident having a, a vehicle. So Ian, the guy that I stayed with, he kept it in his name and I had to sell it through him. You know, I had to sell it in for his name. Um, But he wrote permission for me to ride it. So when I went across the border into Waranda at the customs, I just showed them the paper that said that it it belonged to Ian Parker, but he'd given, you know, Linda Boothestone, blah, 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 permission. And that's that we got at it that way. About 10 years ago, I went to America and I bought a bike in Pennsylvania and I had dreadful trouble because I didn't realize that it depends on from state to state whether you can put in your name or not and I bought it unfortunately in a state that if you only had a three-month visa you couldn't have it in your name I ended up actually having to take it over to one of the other states anyway in Michigan I think it was I had a friend in Michigan and we had to sort of sell it to her and put it in her name (laughs) and then I was still writing it and then I wrote it over to Michigan and then we had to redo it you know go through the whole system again I actually had to fly back to England to get another visa it took so long that I'd run out of visa and I couldn't renew my visa in America so the whole exercise cost me a fortune (laughs) you've got to be careful and um, a lot of people said to me oh no no, it's not right on the I said it is right you know it depends on the state on the west coast you can buy a bike and have it in your name straight away but on the east coast you can't so you've got to check all that luck before, you know, I didn't realize that. So Yeah. Wow. So you mentioned to me before that you've been to my homeland on motorcycle here in Ireland a few times before. What was that like? Oh, well, wet. <laughs> it's always wet in Ireland. That's why it's so lovely and green. Oh, don't I know. <laughs> um, no, I went over there. I think it would have been way back in, in the 60s the first time. And then I went over there in the 70s for a wedding on my bike uh, I met a guy oh, I met this guy in um, oh, where was it Nigeria an Irish guy wow. from Drogheda he was over there teaching we met in a bar one night we spent the whole night singing Irish rebel songs together he was going back to Ireland the next year to marry his girlfriend there and he invited me to the wedding and I said well if I'm back you know if I'm back from South Africa I'll go and I actually was so I went over on my motorbike and went to his wedding yeah it was great. Oh, wow. As a folk musician, it must have been fun to discover all our little sessions in our pubs. Oh, yes. Did yeah. you play while you were here? I, yeah, I first started playing with an Irishman that I'd met over in Perth in Western Australia in 1969. He was playing um, Clancy Brothers music in the flat below, and I went rushing down and said, I know that, I know that, because I <laughs> I could bought all the Clancy Brothers records back in England. Oh, wow. And I said, I know that song. And then uh, he started playing some more that I didn't know, and I learnt all these Irish songs. And I learnt all these Irish rebel songs. And then, of course, when I went back to England in 1972 and was singing them in the pubs, I, I nearly got lynched. Oh. Because oh a lot of the boys had been over, you know, to Northern Ireland and, and they weren't happy at all with hearing the Irish rebel song. So I had to shut up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's like a whole other yeah. world. Yes. Things yeah. are very different nowadays. Do you have any advice for people who might be listening, who are toying with the idea of taking the leap and heading off on some epic adventure like you've been doing? Well, yes, I would say if you can go to some of these sessions that are held by places like Horizons Unlimited. I mean, they have them in Britain. They have them in in all places over the world. People come and talk about their trips and they hold little sessions on different things. In fact, I'm going to be holding a session here on the psychology of long distance riding um, when we have the next HU meeting over here and talk to people. I mean, there's a lot of... (laughs) 
dare I say it, there's a lot of bullshit that goes on as well on these websites. And But if you can find somebody that you can trust to listen to. And the other thing, too many people, they see these things that Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman have done and they, they think they have to have these huge, great adventure motorbikes to go. You don't. You need a reliable bike and you need a bike that you can trust that you can handle, you know, that you actually feel comfortable on. I mean, I've had to go right down now to having a posty bike because gradually I've lost my strength and I can't pick bikes up now that I used to be able to pick up, you know, when I was younger. So you've got to have something that you really feel comfortable with. If you're going to be on your own, especially if you're in Asia, you're never on your own. <laughs> and I never had much problem getting people to help me pick my bike up on my overland trip. But I, I have a lot of trouble over here in Australia is one of the worst countries to go if you're going to be out in the outback by yourself you've got to be really self-sufficient otherwise you can die and and that's why I've just got a really small bike now because if I want to go away by myself I need to know that I can pick the bike up and I can handle it and you don't really need so much equipment either these days there's so many firms that sell all this fancy equipment you know Touratech and all that stuff well of course we never had anything like that when I first started motorcycling and went touring and you just got to have protective clothing obviously you know I just wear thick jeans and a jacket that's okay for if you fell off <laughs> But I don't go for any all this fancy stuff. And I have waterproofs, you know. You asked what was the most important thing with their, my barber overmitts, which they don't make anymore, but they're waterproof overmitts that they used to make that you could put over your leather gloves, which will keep your hands warm and dry. You've got to be comfortable on a bike. So the bike's got to fit you and the clothes have got to fit you. And I think just don't try and copy other people, you know, just do your own thing. It doesn't matter what people say about, oh, that doesn't look very nice. <laughs> just just feel comfortable and safe. That's all I can say, yeah. yeah. That's great advice. How does one come down from a journey like this? It must be really strange to stop moving and to be back home at first, isn't it? Well, that's one of the things I'm talking about in this psychology because there's three different aspects if you're going on the overland. First of all, there's the preparation and the expectation. Then there's what happens if something serious goes wrong along the way. And then the last one is what happens when you've finished a trip like that? Because I have had twice in my life serious repercussions afterwards, you know, serious depression, not knowing what to do with myself. You have to think about that, you know, and that's, that's one of the reasons I won't go away for more than than three months now because I am older now and I know that I you know my mind's not <laughs> as good as it used to be uh, I know that there's certain things that I wouldn't be able to handle that I might have been able to handle when I was 40 years younger yeah. or even 20 years younger so you've got to think about that you've got to plan to have something afterwards that you think for I mean you could think about oh I'm going to write a book I mean I didn't necessarily do that straight away uh, my books have come a long way after I've done trips but mm -hmm. if you come back to another project that you want to do I think that helps it doesn't matter if you come back and you've got family and friends doesn't mean to say that they're going to be that supportive because they've been on a different journey while you've been away. You know, they might be buying a new house or having babies or getting married and they've been on something different so that you can't expect them to really be excited about your trip like you are. You know, you want to show all your films and everything, but it might not mean so much to them. And you've got to realise that. And that's one of the things I want to talk about when I do this forum. You know, it's very important to realise that. Yeah, I'd say so. I can imagine that it can be very tough to just stop. Yes. 
Yes, it can. It can. Yeah. One of the things that happened, especially when I did that overland trip through all those different countries, is that you begin to think of yourself as being an absolute super, superhuman being, you know, because everybody's, oh, wow, wow. You know, you think you're a hero and people are inviting you in and buying you things and you think you're wonderful. But when you come home, you're not. And that can be a hell of a shock. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to realize that you're not a super duper human being you're just you you know and yeah. so say a prophet in their own country <laughs> you don't mean anything to the people that where you come home you know you're just the normal person that you were when you went away they think so you you've got to realize that coming down is going to be a big bump yeah what's next for linda Boothstone, Bick? Well, next week, or after we got rid of this salt festival, because we did a bush dance last night, we're doing a concert next week. I'm going away with my friend uh, Jackie and another lady, Talene, and we're going to be making a film going over to Western Australia for the Adventure Travel Film Festival. We're making a film about crossing part of Australia that people think is really, really exciting. And well, they think it's really something else, but it's called the Nullarbor Plain. And in the old days, it was quite difficult to get across. Now it's just a sealed road. But either side of this sealed road, there are plenty of historical places that, you know, used to be used in the old days and lots of interesting things that people don't normally see when they just go zooming across the bitumen because it's like about 700 kilometres from one end to the other. Yeah. I think, yeah, 300 miles of the Nullarbor means no trees. It's Latin, means no trees. And it's more or less a straight road. But either side, there's lots of interesting things. And we're going to be going off and filming it. Jax has got a drone and Talene's got a really good uh, movie camera. And we're going off on two posties and a van. Posties, by the way, if people don't know, are 110cc Honda little motorcycles that they've used many years over here as postal bikes to be delivering the post. And they don't go very fast, but they're very well built, very sturdy little things. Mm. And uh, people are now using them to go all around the world, but we're just going across another ball. (laughs) But um, that's the next exciting adventure. Wow. Have you got your sights on traveling to any further countries? Oh, well, I would like to go to Japan. I haven't been to Japan and there's a lot of the Women's International Motorcycle Association members in Japan. They're very keen. I've seen them in many different countries. They've come over for the for the women meetings and it wouldn't be a problem for me to find a bike over there. I'm not sure when, though. I've, this year I have to stay in Australia because there are certain things that I'm involved in, like this one, and I'm talking and um, running that forum yeah. at the in November at the HU meeting, and there's lots of other things that I'm involved in. So this year I'm definitely in Australia, but who knows what's, what's going to happen next year. I don't know. Amazing. So where can people connect with you if they want to find out more about your books and your adventures and this film that you're making? Okay. They can look on my Facebook site is under Linda Bick, B-I-C-K. They can look on my website, which is www.lindab.id.au. That's the site that my friend put up for me. If anything's happening, I try and make a note on it. And there's information on me and my books on there and my books where you can get my books, which are on Amazon and some information about, you know, my music and stuff. Do you want me to play you a tune? I brought my whistle. Yes, please. Oh, that'd be fantastic. I was thinking last night, actually, because we were playing for the bush dance. We play lots of Irish music. There's one particular Irish tune that I really like that I've played many places around the world. And I'm sure you'll recognize it. I mean, if you're Irish, you must do (laughs) 
It's absolutely beautiful. Do you know what that one is? Uh, honestly, no. <laughs> do you know the name of it? <laughs> honestly, no. The name escapes <laughs> me. <laughs> you don't. It's King of the Fairies. Oh, King of the Fairies, and yeah, beautiful. my favorite tunes. And I've played it many in many places around the world. They've heard King of the Fairies. <laughs> wow, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful. Listen, Linda, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your music and and all your tips and advice with us. And it's such an honor for me to have you a part of the Motor Witch Chronicles. I'm hugely grateful to you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Koji. It's nice to talk to you and hear that lovely Irish accent. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe. We love hearing back from you guys, so let us know what you think and we will totally get back to you. If you'd like some more content from female bikers around the world, head on over to motowitch.com for articles written by world record holders, adventure riders and new riders alike. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss out on the launch of our new online store and many other things that are in the works. If you're a female biker listening to this and you're thinking that you have something to share with the Motor Witch community, do get in touch with me. No matter how small or insignificant you might think that your motor life is, I guarantee that it's a beautiful and wild adventure that we'd love to hear and someone out there can learn from. Submit your story to hello at motowitch.com now. Either way, come on over to Instagram at MotoWitchCollective and say hi. Screenshot you listening to this episode and we'll share it in our stories. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, ride safe.